Precision medicine, is it hype or help, fact or fiction? Welcome to Precision Insight. This is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine. What is coming up in the near future? If you want to know more about this incredibly fast-moving field of research and development, stay tuned. Today, we will be speaking with Craig Beavers, the cardiovascular pharmacy specialist at UK Healthcare, director of cardiovascular services at Baptist Health, Kentucky and Indiana, and assistant adjunct professor with the University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy. Craig serves as the co-chair of the clinical pharmacist work group of the American College of Cardiology, and as a member of the cardiovascular team council and surviving acute myocardial infarction steering committee. He's an active member of the GTMRX Institute's newly structured evidence-based resources subgroup and of the practice and care delivery transformation work group. Craig has published numerous papers, abstracts, and textbook chapters that focus on cardiovascular pharmacotherapy. He is board certified in pharmacotherapy with an added qualification in cardiology and is a certified anticoagulation care provider. He is a fellow of the American Heart Association and an associate of the American College of Cardiology. We're pleased to have him. Craig, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here to talk about such an exciting and innovative topic. You know, Craig, we've talked a handful of times. I've enjoyed it every one of them because you you take such a broad stroke of what is happening in cardiovascular pharmacotherapy, but you're also so engaged in the community. And, you know, I've enjoyed every one of them and I'm pleased to have you on. With that in mind, though, with so much work you're doing across the space, I'd actually like to take a step back and start the conversation really on some questions about the path you took to get here today. Uh, so maybe let's just start, you know, what led you to become a pharmacist and more specifically, what made you focus on cardiovascular pharmacy? Yes. So interestingly enough, when you think about my pharmacy perspective and how I arrived at pharmacy, when I went to pharmacy school, I talked to a lot of people that were like, you know, they had family that were pharmacists. They had a rich history of people that owned pharmacies or did things within the pharmacy community. I had none of those things. I didn't even have family that had a background in in medicine or did any medical training. Grew up in a very small town in a community of about 4,000 in Tazewell, Virginia, and always appreciate going to our pharmacy and, you know, seeing the connection to the community there and became interested and engaged in that capacity. But then it was when I went to pharmacy school, you think you know what pharmacists do, And then you go to pharmacy school and you learn and you see. And so at the University of Kentucky, you see that there are so many avenues and pathways and areas that pharmacists can impact and touch, whether it's health system, working in the community setting, working in research, doing all the above combined, and then learning that you can even specialize or do specific activities within a particular field was fascinating to me. And and believe me or not, that was engaging and engrossing for a, a young man from Southwest Virginia. So I changed my mind many times throughout the course of my education and, and into training and ultimately landed on cardiovascular disease because of just interest and passion and what drew me to it. You know, as I got through my first year of residency and was at that precipice of where you're deciding what your next steps are going to be, you know, I looked back at what I'd been doing and cardiovascular disease kept crepping up into almost any activity I, I voluntarily chose to do uh, where I would end up tying things back to cardiovascular disease. And then, of course, like a lot of people, 
during that time or around the time that I did this, I had a very close family member, my father, suffer catastrophic event related to, you know, uncontrolled cardiovascular risk factors. And so that definitely forced me further down that trajectory of, you know, this is how I ended up engaged in, in cardiovascular disease and really have made it my guiding stone and passion for everything I do. And so really when I think about anything in my life or choices, career related, I never want to lose cardiovascular disease as a tie-in if possible. So it's really become my, my North star and passion. That's um, fascinating. And I, I think, first of all, I'm very sorry to hear about your father. Uh, oftentimes that can be such a driving factor in what, you know, someone wants to focus on because you get to see something up close and see all the ways it could be improved and all the ways you'd like to have an impact. Out of curiosity, when you were pre-choosing pharmacy, were there other paths? Were you going to go into economics, take the path of being a physician? Was there something else? Or was yeah, so I, I, mean, I knew I wanted to do something in the medical field. Mm. Um, but I, I think what really I appreciated is the time, the tie to the community and that engagement and being so accessible. And that's what I really appreciated from the pharmacist or the pharmacist perspective. You know, the pharmacists are always so accessible as a healthcare provider and have to be the liaison and sometimes the advocate for the patient. I think that's what I ended up, you know, really appreciating and, and choosing down in that pathway. That's what kind of drew it to me uh, when I did exploration uh, in high school of, you know, I shadowed a physician, I shadowed pharmacists, I shadowed some other folks. And so really what I, I gleaned from that was, okay, this is great that you just have this ability to to be there and be accessible for your your community. That's a very good point. You know, we recently had someone on the podcast who owns and operates several retail pharmacies, very busy ones in an urban location. And he made that same point, you know, early on realizing that you could both be a medical professional and very tied into the community and enabling access in a rather unique way really drove his interest in pharmacy as well to standardize and operationalize something across the health system, for example. Uh, Is that something you found since starting in the role? You know, I think as I've matured in my career, you really realize that pharmacists are in a great position due to their background and their training to be cross-collaborative with a variety of different professions. And, and really, I always look at it in this capacity, you know, even in a health system, there are very few things in the health system that doesn't get touched by pharmacists or pharmacy services. And so, what I've been able to work through in my career and as one of my hats that I wear is as a director of cardiovascular services for a hospital, traditionally those are not roles occupied by pharmacists, but I've been able to take the approach and over my career to look at things from the standpoint of everything starts from a medication perspective and grows outward and the groups that you touch and connecting the dots and then you emphasize or tie in the knowledge we have about evidence-based medicine and how to interpret literature and put those things together and think through things uh, from a a really scientific standpoint and to be able to communicate bidirectionally for us to be able to communicate with providers and clinicians to turning our hat the other way and be able to communicate business or operations or flow and trying to tie those things together. I think that's what the beauty of pharmacy is, is if you think historically, it was often tied to a product and then it has evolved clinically and even though we're pharmacists are way more clinically than ever before and still always will be, I think there's always that piece where we historically are 
known about products or distribution or operations and and think about how do we make that recommendation to the patient or to the provider from, from that standpoint. So I think that that's what the beauty of clinical or pharmacists in general, and I, I try not to say clinical pharmacists per se, because in my opinion, all pharmacists are clinical though. Absolutely. I mean, you hit you hit on two points in there that, that really resonate. One is that that unique ability to communicate across disciplines. And the other one is the interest in grounding things in evidence, which actually makes me think you, you've done quite a lot of research. You've currently spent quite a lot of time doing research. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about, you know, your focus, your interests, and what drives you sure. there? So, I mean, a lot of things that I, I try to work through, I focus around either pharmacy practice or clinical practice-based initiatives. How do we get things implemented? I have a, a strong interest in implementation science. How do we take evidence that we know works and remove those barriers to get them into play? And what are the barriers, both from the health system perspective to the patient perspective, to understanding how individuals use things as evidence changes to help us make better decisions from that standpoint. So I think that's where a lot of my interest interest or tie comes into from that perspective. And then understanding how do we take those things and and utilize them to maximize our therapies, efficacy and safety, and what are the tools that we need to do that? So I think, for example, we're talking about pharmacogenomics or in this particular podcast, and that's a great interest of mine in the community and cardiovascular disease, because there's a lot of tie to that, but really is, okay, we know it's important. There's important caveats to it. We know that there's mixed evidence and it's not that the evidence is not good in the sense that we shouldn't be doing it. It's just really understanding who are the populations that we should apply things to. How do we get people to be able to apply them and apply things appropriately and understanding what are the barriers to those avenues? So I think that that's where a lot of my focus is. And clearly everything I try to do is tied to cardiovascular disease, whether it's understanding how to use anticoagulation therapy for mechanical assist devices or understanding barriers to VTE prophylaxis or understanding how to optimize antiplatelet therapy in patients post-acute coronary syndrome. And then the other kind of caveat to that is really disparities in care and, and understanding why there are care disparities because that's a piece of implementation science or trying to make equitable care is understanding why certain populations don't seem to get this benefit and what is the reasoning uh, is that systematic? Is that clinician-based? Is it an education barrier? You know, there's so many things that we think through. The tools may be there, but how do we get them all in the right avenue and process to to be used appropriately? Yeah, absolutely. You know, starting with where's the evidence today um, and how do we communicate that so that providers feel up to speed on where it's strong and where it's less strong? Uh, how do we implement it? How do we provide the right tools? There's a lot of great questions you raised there. Uh, you know, to those that would ask, just for the summary mm-hmm. view of how uh, how should they be thinking about pharmacogenetics in the context of cardiovascular disease today, what would you tell them? So I think what I definitely encourage first and foremost is anybody that is in a cardiovascular space, and, and a lot of people know this, but definitely if you're not sure and thinking about it, getting that good foundational grasp, clearly there is a lot of good literature and evidence, whether you're looking at a CYP2C19 with clopidogrel, if you're looking at the genetic components of your statin prescribing, there are a lot of foundational things we can look at. And clearly with warfarin and pharmacogenomics and the various different enzymatic processes. And clearly there are great studies and positive points we can take from those studies. So understanding those things foundationally, and then going a step further and understanding what evidence and things that people are looking at currently and whether that 
that is data around early evidence with direct acting oral anticoagulants, which are currently up and rising on the market. What are the things that are important to that and the genetics that we can tie to? I think as we learn more about genetics as a whole, we'll figure out more ways to improve that prescribing pathway and that caveats. But I think even having people understand beyond just pharmacogenetics on a daily basis and how we use genetic profiles to develop new agents, such, for example, that they use kind of a backwards processor genetics process to figure out the use, you know, the development of PCSK9 inhibitors and using genes to solve that. So I think getting people to understand those things foundationally and, and really go beyond just saying, okay, we have mixed trials or negative trials. And I think that's always the hardest part in the cardiovascular literature is we often have great data in large trials and some have minor limitations or other limitations, but getting people to think beyond, okay, was this a negative trial and really think, okay, here's where it could have been improved or here's some populations that it truly is of benefit or here's how we could apply this, you know, with for example, clopidogrel uh, prescribing saying, okay, well, maybe we transition them at a month. How do we know that they're going to be okay if we need to transition them off of tachycardia or something else? And really thinking of ways that it can improve the care processes in the patient. And obviously knowing that this is a ever expanding field and that we need to keep up with that as a cardiovascular provider or practitioner to be able to continually implement that practice. Because more so than not, this is going to be a critical piece of thinking about, okay, you know that there's pharmacogenomic effects with therapy. We know some patients are going to carry these effects. And then on top of that, you got to think about all the other things that tie into this. And I think this is why it's important for pharmacists, all pharmacists to be aware of this. And this is a, a paper that uh, several of us have worked together with the American College of Clinical Pharmacy that's going to be coming out talking about the current role of pharmacists and the future role with pharmacists. But pharmacists are in the position to really lead the genetics effort because it's not just, or the pharmacogenetics efforts, because it's not just about, okay, can you understand that there's a genetic abnormality and we need to make dose adjustments? It's putting that in the whole context of, okay, they have a genetic abnormality that's going to impact the metabolism of this therapy, but they also have renal dysfunction and they are taking these other therapies. And what is the compound effect of this? And, and what is the decision that you could make? And how do you have that conversation with the patient about this and putting it in, in that context? And so I think that's important. And pharmacists really need to lead those efforts of both the implementation, the understanding about these things and why it's important to be engaged in the process, especially as this whole area grows, because there are so many components to it. I think we are the medication experts and we should be leading the efforts upon this and, and working to get the processes in place, the protocols, educating ourselves about that. And I think that really when you look at the big gap and historically in pharmaceutical education, this is changing is there hasn't been a lot of training for pharmacogenetics. And so really how do you bring people up to speed on that particular piece? And then obviously, once people get up to speed and are comfortable using it, how do we get the rest of the system on board? Mm -hmm. No, there's, there's so much there. And the pharmacist leading is something we hear over and over and over again, you know, starting with the pharmacology and that basis and understanding of it, and then extending into complex interactions and how to manage them. One piece we hear a lot is that trying to do so in an unsupported way without software, without tools, can be quite challenging. And we see systems like St. Jude's, we see uh, Nemours, we see many of the leading academic health systems actually develop their own software tools because, frankly, even the pharmacists need support implementing this. Is that something that you spend some time thinking about is you know, how would oh, you all support the, time. the pharmacy team? How to support the pharmacists who may not have that full background, or at least to get 
the conversation started and direct them into the right key or place. And I think some of the piece to this is, okay, how do we build the infrastructure if a pharmacist gets an alert or has something that educates them or alerts them to the fact that they need to do something. If it still gets beyond their wheelhouse, what is the next level of of expertise? So we even talked about this with our writing group that we worked on a paper that's going to be coming out. What is the role? I want to highlight that paper too. You you mentioned it twice now and we're looking forward to reading it. Yeah. It's uh, we're we're quite excited to see the work you've done there. Yeah, so it's going to be coming out soon in the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. And I don't want to give away too much because it's a great effort that the college has asked a group to put together. But the key to this is we even talk about what is the role, you know, there's new and upcoming pharmacogenomic residencies and or fellowships. And so what is the role of those individuals outside of not just research, but how do we layer that in? And you and I have had this conversation every hospital and health system has different resources and expertise, right? A a rural community health system may have different resources than an academic medical center. But the point is, in order for us to advance along, we all want to have access to the best type of care, understanding how to use those pieces. So building tools is one thing, and it's important to do that. Having people having the understanding of what to do with, you know, not just the tools, but understanding what the information that comes to those tools, and then who to contact if you're not sure of what to do with the next piece. But then I think the other key to this is just continually providing means for individuals to be able to implement these services. And then the other piece I want to allude to is clearly health systems are an important piece of this, but how do we tie that in with our community partners, our community pharmacy partners? And they have just as much of an opportunity to make interventions or see things that are coming through and have that information. So I think Really, the key also is connecting the dots and providing the solutions and the tools. And and then the the third piece of this is the other important piece of people to be involved in this. It's not just the pharmacist and the provider, but the patient needs to know about these things, right? And providing them a printout like your program does or, or something to let them be aware of. Here is some information that is important, right? And you need to be aware of this and understand what it means and be able to at least introduce this concept to people you may come into that don't have this information and help them make better choices on your behalf and educating the patient to be an advocate for that. So I think that's where we're, we're thinking of. And then obviously the other, and I know I'm saying a lot of things, but technology is going to continue to expand and grow and get better. And, you know, how do we use those pieces to make better decisions as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, from our perspective, when you talk about there, you talk about broadening access and, and access, not just in the leading centers, but everywhere. And you're also talking about team-based care. The idea that Mm -hmm. this has to connect between the pharmacist, the physician, also the nurses, the genetic counselors, and obviously including the patient as a central player. You know, from our perspective, that's something that can be helped with the use of technology, the use of software uh, that can be interoperable and trying to support them in different places there. But I'd like to focus for a second on a different aspect of this. In many ways, when we look at pharmacogenetics, we think really this is about medication personalization. And medication personalization is already in practice today. We see it with medication reviews. Uh, I know the work you're doing with GTMRX involves comprehensive medication management, of which pharmacogenetics is just one piece. Can you tell us a little bit about how you think of comprehensive medication management, including pharmacogenetics, or even just pharmacists conducting consults? Like, What does that look like and how do they come together? This is a great conversation that I've had with a lot of 
individuals and I've had with you. And I, I think that the important thing is when you think about comprehensive medication management, it's using all the information and tools at hand to really optimize the best possible regimen for the patient based on a variety of different factors, including the patient. And so when I think about it, it's not just that standard approach of, okay, we're going to make renal adjustments or do this. You know, it's really having the conversations of, okay, should we be doing deprescribing? You know, what is the true utility of this agent at this particular point? How do we know that it is doing the best option for the patient? And then how, do we, how are we measuring that and how are we following what those outcomes are from that particular perspective. So I think it's it's not just, okay, you're right. We've always tried to do personalized medicine to some degree, but I think really getting into the granular details of what tools and things that we have available for us to do those things and thinking about the time continuum as the patient changes to continually to evaluate and make changes using labs, using genetics, as they get new medications prescribed, as their disease states changes, as their disease state progresses, as they get new disease states. You know, I think that's where the comprehensive piece is that it's really a holistic approach of looking at the patient and not necessarily just looking at the therapy and their regimen, but looking at their therapy and their regimen in the 4D factors, if you will, the different factors that play into this whole piece and really trying to make truly evidence-based educated decisions about what the patient truly needs and and to be as streamlined as possible and thinking not just, okay, is it hard outcomes that we're worried about? Uh, Is it also quality of life outcomes? Is it all those things tied together? And and really uh, understanding what that means for the patient, for their outcomes, and even tying that back to what that means from the value-based care equation in terms of does that mean we are doing the best thing that is also for the health system or the, the population, all the community? And really, in order to do that, as I alluded back a few moments ago, you have to use everything at your disposal. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's a lot of different ways to cut the benefits to the patient, to the health system, to the provider. There's a lot of ways that this can help everyone in their individual objectives. Um, but it's unique in, in its complexity in that you know, it doesn't exactly get down to the fine point that some people get from a new therapeutic. And I'd love to ask you, you've been doing this for a while. Are there any particular patients that stand out to you that you recall their story and you go, wow, pharmacogenetics actually really made an impact here? I mean, I can definitely think of lots of instances with post-acute coronary syndrome patients. It would usually do a lot with, and you run into these situations where they may be on a therapy, and this has happened more than once, that has some form of induction, like they're on phenytoin or another anti-epileptic that usually induces agents like a 3A4 enzymatic process. And you know, they've been on it and you're concerned about giving them ticagrelor because you have a CYP3A4 inducer, you're concerned that they might not respond to the ticagrelor because it's metabolizing so fast. Well, then your next concern is, okay, I can give them Prasagril or clopidogrel, but my concern is if I switch them over, are they going to be a responder or not? And I'm going to put the, set them up for failure. And so, you know, you can do genetic testing. And we've done this in instances where we truly understand what their, their SIP enzymatic profile is and feel more comfortable and secure that if they take the therapy that they're going to derive the benefit. We are okay in this particular conundrum from doing that. And it goes back to the example we're saying is when you get in a comprehensive medication therapy management, it's really taking some population-based level data, but really also 
looking at the patient's characteristics to really get to the point of like, okay, we know we are concerned about this from one end, we're concerned about this from the other, but we have these tools that we can use to really understand what is the impact that therapy can be. Uh, and then you you find out, okay, supposedly in a situation you genetic test them and they are going to be a poor responder to clopidogrel based on their genetic profile, then you have to backwards look and say, okay, what are our next steps? Do we change our antileptic therapy? It allows you to truly make better decisions. Yeah, we obviously were biased. We agree with that through and through. I'd like to pivot the conversation a bit right now. And thank you for that story. You know, I'd like to talk about some of the challenges. So we're talking about all the benefits, all the promise, all the hope, and, mm-hmm. and, and obviously we see it. But the challenges are real and they're present. We talked to a lot of folks who were expecting pharmacogenetics to be widely adopted five, 10 years ago, you know, and it hasn't been. We certainly see a lot of movement right now. In the last couple of years, we see a lot of movement and a lot of people coming together. From your perspective, what do you think needs to be true for pharmacogenetics to take the next step? And in particular, for hospital executives that need to really buy into this to take the next step and formalize a pharmacogenetic program? So clearly, I think obviously getting the various parties educated and on board, that includes pharmacists and understanding what the risks, benefits, how to do proper genomics are. Obviously, if there are providers that are not aware and understanding, I think anytime you approach these types of questions, you have to devise who's going to be the champion. You clearly, like you alluded to, is a team-based approach. You have to work as a team with your lab with your physicians, with the pharmacists, the nursing group, et cetera, everything needs to work through together and really put a a solid project plan. I think when you talk to the C-suite, they really want to know, okay, what does this mean from the bottom line in terms of the cost and expense in in those pieces? And then the other piece, if you're thinking about a health system approach and you're looking at an ambulatory side or a community-based side, you know, how can we bill for some of these things? And I think that that's where some of the rub has been historically is, you know, how do we get paid for this? What does this mean from that standpoint? But I really think the key to any good process is to really start out with your team-based approach, identify who your champions are, maybe select a few genetic tests or one or two to start out with, identifying a population that your hospital or health system has a good degree of that would be meaningful, that you have the ability of the lab to run and be able to get the reporting structure down. Obviously, there's IT challenges that go into that, whether the information is flowing into the medical record, who has access to that information, how long does it take to get that information, those types of things you have to work through. And then taking a few tests to get the process baked, if you will, and, and show that it is a win. And then once people start doing it, familiar with it, then you can start expanding and growing it. So I think the key is starting off small. And then obviously the other challenges, as I said, we still face is billing insurance and other folks uptake into understanding the benefits of this. But I think as people are trying to move towards value-based care, it makes more and more sense to have these tools and that information. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll circle back to the tools in a second. But just on this point of the expectation being that pharmacogenetics is going to hit an inflection point and that continuously getting pushed into the future. Do you think that this is actually the time that that it's actually happening this time from what you see in your work? Or or do you think that we're maybe still some years away? No, I think now is the time or not. I don't want to say the birth because clearly it's been going on, but I really think this is like you're alluding the inflection point. I'm seeing more and more institutions interested in it and especially non-academic institutions. And so I think that's when you start seeing community systems and other organizations 
look into and try to provide that and not try to provide it in the sense that they could market and say they're doing it. It's a, a niche, but really thinking through how to get that into practice, that's when you you know that it's catching on, right? Yeah, and we see a lot of that right now. I mean, and this is to focus exclusively on the provider side as opposed to the plan where we see a lot of movement as well, or even the FDA working with Stripe and CPIC, a lot of movement, but glad that's what you're seeing on the ground also. Let's circle back to that technology point. If this is going to broaden and it's going to go down through that academic environment and into some of the community settings and ambulatory settings, what technology do you think some of these other health systems are going to need to succeed and enable that kind of team-based care that we've talked about? Oh, I think, again, technology that is integrative with the electronic health record that allows that information to flow quickly and appropriately, and that provides adequate at least starting point from an education standpoint, but will also have mechanistic ways to reach out to people that are experts or if you need additional information. Again, I think in the academic center, it's maybe easier to find those types of individuals in a community setting. You may not have those resources, so you have to have some built-in layer, some hub and spoke model or center of excellence model or something that you can most certainly reach into those folks. I think, again, the, the key that I get most concerned about in this whole process is how do we integrate with our community providers that need to be aware of this information too. And this is not just with genetics. It's a longstanding problem with other medical information, but how do we bridge that gap with our community providers? Because again, sometimes they may see more of what's going on with patients in some aspect than other pharmacists and so forth. And so how do we make sure that we're not forgetting about everybody who is going to need that information or, or provide that information? Again, some of that is how do you engage the patient and other technologies, whether it's mobile devices, integrated electronic health records, whatever that may be, but how do you share that information? But at, at the basic standpoint is you want tools or processes that are integrated with the medical records so that information's there, it's convenient, people can be at the point of prescribing or around that point that they can see that genetic information or have access to it, or there's alerts or something that can trigger people into the concept of like, do you know this person has this pharmacogenetic pair mismatch or anomaly? Here's what your options are, what your risks are, and what does that mean? And and sometimes it's beyond just saying, okay, you're going to expect a 30% reduction in metabolism, right? If they have this genetic abnormality, that is helpful, but it really doesn't tell you, you what does that mean in the grand scheme of things of outcomes, right? And that's what you really want to know. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. Let me play this back to you. What I'm hearing there is that you need a system that's going to be both proactive and reactive. You know, Correct. it's going to help support something where people are planning for it and catch something before you make a mistake. It also needs the flexibility so that there is a choose-your-own-adventure quality to it where someone can go shallow, but they're also able to work collaboratively with someone who wants to go really deep and wants to dive into every single detail. Is that how you think about this? Yeah, no, I mean, I absolutely think think that is the, the case. Is You want it to be collaborative and reactive and, and proactive. I mean, you want it to be proactive for sure, uh, but if for some reason the proactive step missed, you still want it to be reactive. I just think the exciting thing about having all these technologies and opportunities is you have all these things, but then you have to think about what are the, as we fine tune them, what are the Swiss cheese whole model areas of problems? And, and so the reason I think proactive and reactively about it is 
you want to cover all your bases, right? And you want that information to be there prescribing. And then if it gets missed, you want it to also be in the background. You, you know, you want it to continue to be there and to be present for anyone who needs it or has to use that information. But I think collaboration is key as well. So. Linking back to, and you've mentioned collaboration a few times, linking back to that role that the pharmacist can play, how do you view trust and confidence building and, and human connection as a, a key component? for pharmacogenetic implementation to be successful? Human connection is very key. I mean, that's that whole conversation. And really, even when you think about to the patient, giving them this information and talking to them through what does this genetic information mean and what does this mean for your risk and and understanding, okay, what does this mean for your risk, your future risk, other family members' risk, and then also just thinking back to the provider and having them understand, okay, here's what this means in context. So there is a human connection component to all this, and you can never really take that away from the pharmacy or the pharmacotherapy side of it. I think that that's an important piece. So for all of those in in cardiology, just to take this home, where would you suggest they look for resources to try and grapple with this? Would you make the suggestion that they start taking precision medicine more seriously now rather than wait another five or 10 years? Absolutely. I would most certainly encourage pharmacists and especially cardiovascular pharmacists to pay attention to precision medicine if you haven't already, and a lot of people have, but continually emphasizing the importance of always learning about it and seeing what's new and what's going on out there. And then just broadly to any pharmacist, I think it's important for everyone to come up to speed and go back and take some courses, or do some intensives, or do a mini certificate program, whatever that may be to get, get up to speed with pharmacogenomics. I think it's important. And then we'll obviously continue trying to pull people along and bring them into that space. But then it's not just understanding what the, the genetic data is and what are the opportunities to incorporate this, what are the tools, the ability. I think that's the important piece. And I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I think it, it's really important that we as pharmacists take the opportunity to do these things now proactively be engaged because we really should be the leaders of this. We should be demonstrating that we're the leaders of this and we should be helping our organizations move forward with this. And so I think it's definitely the time to do that now. And what, uh, what resources do you use to stay up to speed on? I mean, you referenced a lot of them. CPIC is a great tool of resources doing evidence-based scans and doing courses, coursework through a variety of different communities. There's all sorts of great pharmacogenomics consortiums that exist from University of Florida and Minnesota. They offer all sorts of education and programming that I use as resources, connections with individuals. So you guys have done outstanding podcasts with other speakers, reaching out to those individuals to ask questions, or they're very open to a lot of these things. Making those connections are always good. If you're at an institution or health system, I always say, if you don't already know who's working on this, you should try to figure it out. And if there isn't, you should try to be that person and introduce your C-suite or whomever that is about these opportunities from that standpoint. But those are some of the resources I always start out with and think through. If someone listening wanted to take you up on that offer and wanted to reach out to you or to read more about your work, where would they find you? You can definitely find me. My email uh, and contact information is on the University of Kentucky's College of Pharmacy's website, and you can most certainly email me anytime. I'm happy to do that and connect dots from, from that perspective. And then obviously Google or PubMed my name or whatever that is, and you can see what we're doing and what's going on. So, Well, Craig, I got to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for uh, having me. I'm very much looking forward to your uh, your upcoming publication on pharmacogenomics and implementation of health systems. 
yeah, we look forward to talking with you again soon. Sure. Thank you so much.